0: So let's go now to Romans chapter 8. I think if, well, there's just undoubtedly I have preached on this text more than any text I've, I've preached on. Um, and I typically preach on this text uh, January 1st or the Sunday around January 1st uh, because this, in my mind, is where we get a worldview of how to live life and um, because we all experience suffering. So let's look at it. Paul is very direct in how to do that. For those who were called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Well, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We sang that this morning, as a matter of fact. Uh, us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. But Jesus, we need you to come and we need you to speak to our hearts and our souls and we need you to rearrange our thoughts to move from self-confidence to God-confidence, faith. We need you to come by your Spirit and take us from skepticism to belief. We need you to come and and take us from self-reliance to God-reliance. We need You to come and give us eyes to see and ears to hear that You are at work, even and especially when we think that You're not. And, oh God, we pray that You would come and You would dispense Your mercy and Your grace to us in ways that we cannot. May we fall in love deeply with Jesus in response to His deep love for us. Father, would You change us as only You can? And we need You to do that because I can't do that for anybody. can't even do it for myself. So come, Lord Jesus, and speak to us through Your Word, by Your Spirit, through this fallen vessel and this fallen instrument. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a message that's been going around the church since the moment the serpent opened his mouth in the Garden of Eden. And the message says this, God is a liar and the proof is your life should be better than it presently is. There's a lie that is whispered in our ear constantly. There's a lie that is being preached even in our day that says, if you be true to God, God will be true to you and your refrigerator won't broke and you'll have a car and you'll have a job and you'll have a spouse and all of your desires will be fulfilled in this life. And I want you to know that that is a lie from the pit of hell. And it doesn't matter how white the teeth of the one that brings it or how perfect the hair or how prosperous is life. God never promised to make life this side of heaven, heaven. And yet it has so much power in our lives because it's what we all want. We want redemption now. We want glory now. We want heaven now. We want everything to be smooth. And there's something in us that says, God, if you really love me, then you would make that reality now. And because you're not, you must not be real. There's something that, that our hearts just latch onto in that message. Because we were made not for what we experience. We were not made for this world that we live in. We weren't made for the fallenness and the brokenness and the death and the struggle with sin and and, and the, the, the conflict in relationship and all the junk that we deal with on a daily basis. We were not made to live in the world in which we live in the state in which it is. And yet we were made for God. And we can't live without God. It doesn't matter how far we run. It doesn't matter how much we push against Him. We were still made for God. And so all of us, every human being, has to live in this reality of trying to reconcile this fallen world and our need for God. We know we should love God. We know we should give our lives to God. And yet we look at our lives and we just say the two don't add up. So how do we reconcile the two? The life that we live and the God that we were made for. This text tells us. And and there are three things that we need to see at least. And uh, Chris and I shot some text back and forth this week. I mean, we could spend ten years in the book of Romans. We could probably spend a fourth of that time right here in chapter 8. And so I've got to go like this, man. I've got to just spread it out. So three things, even though we could say about 50 things, at least from these verses. But here are the three that I've chosen. And the first is this. <clears throat> to reconcile the world in which we live with the God that we are supposed to love, we've got to believe that bad stuff happens to God's people. That's so counterintuitive. You have to believe that bad stuff happens, excuse me, to God's people. To you and me. Even when we're faithful, bad stuff is going to happen to you and it's going to happen to me. Now, I love to fish, and you know that if you know anything about me. But sometimes I feel really bad for the fish, <laughs> because I'm at an advantage. You see, the stream is there, or the lake is there, and I'm going to use fly fishing because the water's so clear, I can stand on the bank, which is outside of their world, and I can look into their world and study them. And I can plan and I can scheme and I can, I can read and I can talk to other people about the best way to deceive those fish into biting into the fly that I choose for them. The right size, the right shape, and the right color in that order. I want you to know that that's how many of us think God deals with us that he stands on the bank and he looks at our lives and he says, oh, okay, I'm going to throw this before him and let them think that they have to give up everything in the world to bite into this, that if they don't have this, then they have nothing. And as soon as we bite in, we feel the hook in our jaw and we end up in a net. And many of us think that that is what Christianity is. It's a bait and switch. God promises one thing but gives us another. He promises life, but we experience death, right? But guess what? Paul lays that out for us. Look at verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. (laughs) Paul is saying that's what it feels like to be a Christian in this world. We're being killed all day long. He goes further. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You ever feel that way? You feel that way this morning? Let me tell you, God has not promised to give you life by changing the circumstances of your life. But what He's promised to do is to give you life by giving you Him. Jesus said it in John 6. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not go hungry. He who comes to Me and and, 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 and consumes Me will not be thirsty. If you take me, if you say, oh, you are the bread, then you will have life no matter what's going on in your life. That's what God promises. We can taste God and His goodness in this life, but this life never replaces Him as life. Jesus said this in John 16, in this life you will have what? Many troubles. But behold, I have overcome the world. Isn't that beautiful? Don't look at the circumstances of your life, look at me. This life is hard, and we see it in this text. Let's just skim verses 18 through 27. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation who's waiting, with eager expectation, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility. Man, doesn't work, doesn't life, doesn't relationships feel like that? Doesn't raising children, doesn't having parents, doesn't having a job, not having a job, having a car, not having a car, having a house, doesn't it all just feel like futility? Because we've been given over to futility in this world. And he just goes on. And what Paul is saying is, admit that there is futility in this world. Because if you don't admit it, then you can't hope. If you're not admitting that this life is tough, then you're not looking forward to a better life. He so said, that's so simplistic, but it's so real. Just look, last, last uh, month, February, was Black History Month. Let's just take Martin Luther King, Jr., now, why did he give up a lucrative career that he could have had as a, as a preacher? That's probably what he would have chosen, but, but others said he could have been a, a very powerful and influential politician. But instead, he chose to fight for civil rights, to fight for justice. And he chose to do that peaceably. He chose to do that in dependence upon God. And yet, how did he do it? How did he endure the bomb that went off at 16th uh, Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, killing four little innocent uh, African-American girls in Sunday school? How did he keep his wits about him with the fire hoses uh, uh, coming down upon him and those standing with him? How did He keep the hope and keep the faith when the dogs were let loose, when the lynchings were happening in Arkansas and Alabama and Mississippi? How did He keep the focus? He said, today and what's happening today, my present circumstances, don't define me. But another day does. I mean, that's how we all endure suffering. We don't, we look at the suffering that we have and we don't give in to it. We say, this is horrible, but this doesn't define me. There's a better day coming, and that is the hope of Christianity. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. I consider that our present sufferings, what are your present sufferings? Name them. So you've got to do that. If you're not naming your sufferings, you're not living honestly. You don't have to act as if nothing has happened to you. You can name what's happened to you. Because you don't have to fear as a believer because what has happened to you or what is happening to you or what will happen to you does not define you. There's another day that defines you. And that's Paul's hope. Never does God expect us to act as if this life is glory. What I'm telling you this morning is you have the right to say, I don't like whatever. I'm tired of being tired. Somebody in this room told me that about eight days ago. I'm tired of being tired. Can you be that honest? I'm tired of being tired. You know why we as Christians fall into much of the sin that we do? Because the church has become a place where we can't just stand up and say, I'm tired of being tired. I don't like my children on some days. I'm sorry. I don't like my spouse on some days or maybe for the past ten years. I don't know. You think, you think heaven has changed by us admitting that, that we live in a fallen world and we're not dealing with it perfectly and we don't like the state in which we're in? No! In fact, God is saying, do it! He's saying creation is groaning! He's saying that the Spirit of God is groaning. God is groaning, so why in the church groaning anymore? Why do we have this false spirituality that says, "Oh, we just have to have it all together and, and act like that we don't know, oh, you know, trouble never comes to our house because we serve the Lord." Every character in the Bible that served the Lord was persecuted, killed, betrayed, hurt, sinned. Why do you think you're different? I'm not different. We're not different. But but understand there's a difference between groaning for something better in a new day than complaining and whining. Complaining and whining, here's the difference. Complaining and whining is rooted in hopelessness in me. But groaning is rooted in utter hope in God. I may not have a house today, but oh, I've got a home in glory. Uh, you know, my relationships may be messed up, but guess what? There's one who loves me and he knows everything about me. Th- do you see it? Yeah, I-, I may not have a job now, but I know in glory God has made me for purpose and I will know purpose and glory. I will have a job. We need to learn in the church today to groan again. We need to learn in the church today to groan for something better. You know, there's a difference between a person who doesn't have a car and has to walk places and a person who has a car but it's in the shop and has to walk places. (laughs) The person who doesn't have a car and has to walk places walks kind of slow because that's their lot in life. But oh, the person who does it, or whose car is in the shop, they, they walk like, like, a, like a man or woman who owns a car, it's just in the shop. Are you walking like a man or woman who has a car and you know it, but it's just in the shop? <laughs> Do you see it? You can groan, but not as men who have no hope. And then, secondly, We need to understand that not only do bad things happen to God's people, but God is working all things for the good of God's people. God is working all things. The story of Joseph in Genesis is one of my favorite stories because it gives us a glimpse of the life of a man. You see it from beginning to end. And you see that Joseph had a favored time in his life. His daddy loved him, favored him so much more than any other kids that he gave him a coat of many colors. And oh, Joseph loved that coat of many colors. And, you know, his brothers hated him for it. And so you see he had this incredible upbringing, had this intimate relationship with his father. But then his brothers, you know, saw him out in the field one day and sold him as a slave to the the foreigners. And he's taken off. He acts righteously, and yet he's accused of something falsely. He's thrown into prison. We look at Joseph's life, and we say, okay, man, what is all that? What is that? What's the purpose of all that? I mean, why did God? God didn't have to do all that. And yet he did all that. See, the whole theme behind the uh, the narrative, behind the deal, is that God is orchestrating all of this. And that's exactly what we're getting from this text, is that what has ever happened to you in your life, God has been orchestrating. Rachel and I were driving to the airport in Colorado. We spent ten days in Colorado, visited dear friends, preached at our old church. We're driving back, and, and I think it was Rachel that said, and exactly what I'm thinking is, that, what in the world were these five years about? Why would God take us from Olive Branch to Colorado only to bring us back to Memphis? I mean, what is God up to? And you know what? We don't know. And you know what? It doesn't really matter. Because God tells us in this passage that all things work together for good for those who love God. It doesn't matter if you understand what God is doing in your life or with your life. God does, and there's purpose to every single moment. And we see that that's what got Joseph through his life. He he becomes, he's elevated to second in command in the land, and there's a great famine in the land, and his brothers come back and they don't recognize him but they come to beg food from him and and you know but but what do you see it's interesting that as soon as they walk in the door joseph neither kills them uh, nor welcomes them he reveals himself i mean he he holds himself back from them why because what we see is he still misses his father so much everybody in here has some kind of father wound <laughs> And there it is in Joseph's life. He has all the power and the land. He can have anything he wants. His word is law. And all he wants to do is be reconciled to his daddy. This world can't replace your father. And yet at the end... When he finally reveals himself, his brothers are shaking. They're thinking, he's going to kill us, and what does he say? Everybody knows it. God, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. And what's amazing about that story is that God, what Joseph is saying is, is that God orchestrates evil the evil things that people do to us and the evil things that we do to others for good. Here's how we typically deal with the evil things done to us in our lives. We we revolt from them. We run away from them. We blame God for them. Can you imagine what your life and my life would look like if we stood before all the evil, that everything that's ever happened to us, everything that is happening to us, everything that will happen to us, and say, you mean it for evil, but God means it for good. And I'm going to keep loving you. And I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay in this. I'm I'm going to keep fighting because you mean it for evil, but God means it for good. And I trust Him more than I fear you. You can't hurt me enough to say say that I hate my God. I mean, what He's saying here is absolutely revolutionary. He's defining how we are to look at our very lives. I was writing this part of the sermon at Holiday Ham. And the Yellow House... Is right across the street from the Holiday Ham. If you don't know what the Yellow House is, that's okay. But the Yellow House is that little house on the side street across from Holiday Ham where AA meetings have been held for years. And I, I sat there looking at the Yellow House and thinking about all the stories of pain and destruction that have come through that house. And I thought these, these words just came hitting, came, came just bouncing up against me all things, all things, all things. Every story of every child of God that's ever been told, every bad thing that's been done to them, against them, and every bad thing that they've done, all things. God is working all things for the good of His children. How do we typically feel when we are sinned against? How do we typically feel when we are most down in life? We feel as if God has abandoned us. But what this text says is there is never a moment at which God has abandoned you or me. Amen? It doesn't matter how you're feeling. It doesn't matter if we can understand it. All that matters is that all things work together for good for those who love God. Absolutely revolutionary. Look at this list. We're not talking about, oh, I missed a parking space. Oh, I, you know, I lost my wallet. Oh, tribulation, distress, persecution. These folks are being driven from their homes simply because they named the name of Jesus as their Lord and not Caesar. They're losing their jobs. They're being separated from their children. They're being burned at the stake. Persecution. Famine. Famine. We're not talking about missing a meal for a day or two. We're talking about the possibility of not being able to feed your family for months. Nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, demons, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. All things, your most mundane moment, your most glorious moment, your worst moment. God has never abandoned you, dear child. Now, where do you feel abandoned most in your life? You you have the power in Christ to go right to that place and say, Oh, I felt alone. But I was not alone. God was working. He was at work. So what was He at work doing? Let's wrap it up. God is at work for good. So what in the world is the good? I'm a father of three daughters. And I have one job as a father of three daughters. And that has been to tell my children that they were made by God, like God, for God. You want to know what your role is as a parent? There it is. You're welcome. They are a dependent creature. They're made by God. They are not God. They, but they are made like God. They're in the image of God. And so the only way that they're really going to understand their lives is if they get to know God. But they're also made for God. And therefore, the very purpose for which they, they, they you know, have been created is to bring glory to that God, specifically how how He has wired them. By God, like God, for God. And then our role as parents is to come in and to teach them that sin is bad, that authority exists, that a loving father and a loving mother are never going to leave nor forsake them. We're to basically image God to our children. And yet as they get older, we are to, when they stand there and look at us and say, that stove is not going to burn my hand, well, maybe they need to touch that stove for just a second to understand that we're not as dumb as we look. And when they're a teenager and they think we're the dumbest, most ignorant people on the planet, just maybe they need to, to, to be let loose a little bit to understand that maybe we do know some things. Now, do you see that this is exactly what God does with us as His children? Because that's what we are. He's our Father, we're His children. The problem is, I'm 49 years old and I don't want to be parented. I want to be done with being parented. I don't want to feel like a six-year-old. And yet that's exactly how my father makes me feel sometimes because he allows me to act like a six-year-old and see what the consequences are. And it's the best thing he can do. But it's all under his care. It's all under the umbrella of His sovereign power and will. And it's not without purpose. What is the purpose? What in the world is the good that God is trying to get to in our lives? We see it right here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Do you know what our daddy is up to in our lives right now? He is conforming you to the image of Jesus. You want to know what God's will is for your life? It's for for you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. He's not as much concerned about if you get the job or not. He's concerned about if getting the job or not is going to get you more into the image of Jesus. What does that mean? The image of Jesus. I mean, it's very simple. Who is Jesus? He has redeemed humanity. He is what every one of us should be to, in order to glorify God. So what does that mean? Let's just make it simple. What are the two greatest commandments? God narrowed it down. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So what is redeemed humanity? It's to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves. In other words, be, live a life that is of some use to your neighbor and God, not you. Life is about God and other, not you. And so everything in your life, you want to know the purpose behind everything, every blessing and every tragedy? God is seeking to use that to show you that He can be trusted and you need to trust Him. He's showing you His goodness and doing that short sale on the house, Janine. <laughs> He's showing you His goodness and His kindness, Kenna. you got the message. That's what He wanted. He wanted you to feel so loved by Him this weekend as your roommate gave you the car. and all. He wanted you to feel all of that. But He wanted you to do that so that you might look in your life and say, well, what am I trusting instead of Him? And I need to let go of those things and I need to hold on more to God because I am made for Him and He's a loving Father and He loves me, He's given His own Son for me. And the only way that we're going to get to that point, the only way we're going to fall into God's plan for our life and that is to conform us to the image of God is if we believe that He loves us. Well, guess what? I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you look at everything that Paul has shown us up to this point, he has shown us that we are fallen, we are sinful, but the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. He said those who believe now stand righteous before God as if we, we are no more and no less righteous than the Son of God. And I am scared to death to even say that because if there's any falsity in that statement, I could be struck dead. <laughs> But he, that's what Paul has been saying. You are righteous, God's people. And therefore, you are united to Christ. And there's no difference between you and Christ in terms of the Father's heart. And you know why it's so important to believe that? Because it's only when you believe that, that you will let go of the control of your life and you will fall into His loving arms and you will say, do with me as you wish. Do you know what true love is? It's when you find that special someone and you say, I'll go wherever you go and I'll do whatever you do. I'm yours. Well, guess what? That's what God wants from you and He loves you first. Nothing can separate you from the love of God this morning. He is a Father that you can fall into and trust. He will not abuse you. He will not play cruel tricks on you. He loves you. And guess what? He's going to finish what He started. Because those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. Now listen to this. And those He justified, He also glorified. Do you feel glorified this morning? I don't. Paul uses the past tense. He doesn't say He will glorify. He said He has glorified. You know why? Because it's that certain in the Father's plan and mind. Dear friends, God has so bound you to Himself, if you're His child this morning, that nothing can separate you from His love. So follow into His arms and let Him do what He's doing in your life and look back and say, My circumstances in life, the things people have done to me are not going to define me. My God's love is going to define me. And let's come to the table this morning. If you've never believed that, then believe it this morning. Jesus is offered to you. And if you've believed it, but you're struggling, believe it again. Because Jesus is offered to you. Let's prepare our hearts and minds to come to the table as we respond to His grace by bringing His tithes and our offerings, meditating for a moment as we, as we come.